host, Angie Solanke, National Director of Retail for the U.S. at Collier's. And I thank you for joining us as we continue our podcast series throughout 2023. Well, as you've heard from our meeting experts and some amazing industry insights that we've gathered over the past several months, we continue down that pace. And I'm really excited to sit, share to you, share for you today, excuse me, Casey Conway. So many in our industry know Casey. He is just, you know, just has so much information to share, but looks at it from a point of view, in my opinion, that is very unique. Um, as we all know, Casey comes with 37 years of experience as an appraiser, bank regulator, CRE underwriter, credit officer, economist, investor, and expert witness. Now, Casey, that is a lot. And hopefully I'll never encounter you as an expert witness in anything that we do together. Um, but nonetheless, your expertise honestly has um, such value, especially to those that are listening into our podcast, as well as uh, other conferences that I've seen you at. So welcome to our podcast today. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and the, and the Collier's uh, folks and teammates. You guys do a great job for the industry. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with that, let's just like dive right in. So, you know, I know I shared a little bit about your expertise and my goodness, I'm sure you have some other fun side hobbies as well. But can you give us a brief background? Sure. So I'm a scarred multi-generation appraiser. So I had no help, no hope, Angie, I was going to have to do valuation work. So I, I started my career in that because my, my dad convinced me, once you know how to manipulate value, you can get a loan, you know, when to sell a property, you know what the cap rate should or shouldn't be. So I started out there and then worked into real estate finance. I was assistant chief appraiser for Wells Fargo and got into the capital side with Prudential and Legacy Equitable and, and le learned how the money really flows into deals and how they buy assets. And uh, then was fortunate enough to be uh, with Colliers as their U.S. chief economist for a while and then did a tour of duty with the Fed in 2005 to nine. It was kind of a little interesting time. We had a little bit of a housing crisis then and kind of uh, like what we were having today in terms of a market disruption. And uh, then I went into academia uh, over at the University of Alabama, their real estate center. I was their director of research. So we did a lot around ports and logistics and supply chain before we even heard that term during COVID. <laughs> so I do a lot around the ports and supply chain. And and then I got laid off during COVID because um, they had to save uh, revenue and, and faculty for the football program at Alabama. They, they think they play football over there. <laughs> I, I jab at him a little bit. And uh, so then I decided uh, the only thing I hadn't done, Angie, was have my own company. So in 2020, we started Red Shoe Economics, which is kind of a boutique uh, economic forecasting expert witness uh, company. And I, I do most of my work around expert witness work, for all the property tax appeal um, and, and then ports and logistics. And now we're doing uh, space nomics, the space economy, which will be the next big thing that'll, that'll pull us out of this recession. So I don't, I don't do much, but that's what I do. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Well, I like your next chapter. This is fascinating. And, and as it relates to the, to all things space, because that's basically my, my kind of secret hobby on the side. I love just hearing about it, talking about it and, and what's going on. So, um, well, fascinating background as always. And you've seen and touched, uh, you know, different verticals and how you bring it all together to demonstrate how we can evaluate, you know, um, from an economic perspective and, and forecast is really, you know, uh, I, I, as I said earlier, it, it just creates, it makes you stop and rethink things. Um, and as you know, we've been really focused on, 
such change in retail. And, you know, we're starting to see that, yes, we've been uh, fortunate in retail as it relates to retail leasing activity, capital markets, how consumers are spending and they continue to spend and spend and spend. But yes, there is going to be a day where things start to slow down. And we're seeing a little bit of that here in the month of March, March 2023. But from your perspective, retail focus, but more macroeconomics, how are, what are the top three you know, macroeconomic elements we should be watching for when it comes to commercial real estate that no one's talking about at this point? Yeah, so great question. So one, I, I just did a couple of briefings to the bank regulators on this. The New York Fed just came out with our new consumer debt report, uh, the New York Fed, and it showed we hit a new record level of $16.9 trillion household debt, and our credit card debt for the first time ever hit almost a trillion dollars. So pretty soon the millennials are going to be able to make fun of mom and debt that they have more debt than the, than the student loan debt. But I really worry about that because, as you know, in retail, if, if interest rates are higher and we have more debt, that erodes our ability to to do retail spending and consumption there. So I think that's one to really be watching, especially with these rate hikes. The second one is where our workforce and people are moving. So one of my favorite Christmas gifts every year comes about in first or second week of January, which is the U-Haul moving report. And it shows where everybody moves, you know, according uh, to U-Haul. And it's been showing this continued trend that we're moving away from places that don't have affordability um, and that remote work allows you to work. So we're moving inland uh, to the Intermountain region from, you know, Bozeman, Montana and Boise, Idaho, all the way down to uh, Phoenix and Tucson, Arizona uh, to throughout the South. So with remote work, we can really work anywhere um, and, and do that. So looking at where that workforce in, is moving in that population is going to forecast really where the strength in, I think, retail is going to be, where we're going to need new grocery stores and drug stores and all of that. So I see more growth in those areas where all those U-Haul trucks are going. And I think the third thing that I'd point out is this is really a suburban retail story that with remote work, not many of us want to go back to the city. We don't want commuting costs and parking costs and dry cleaning costs and and all that stress. We'd rather work remote in the suburbs where we can do more with families, um, that we get rid of $700 a month in commuting costs. And so I'm observing that retail in the suburbs, um, whether it's a primary market or a secondary, is very strong. And as you noted, it's largely in services. So that's where we go to eat now. That's where we get all of our services, our pet grooming, our dry cleaning. It's in the suburbs rather than the inner city. So I'm very bullish on suburban and secondary retail, and I'm a little more concerned about the urban retail. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, of course, we we have over 500 retail professionals in North America. And so when we're looking at the back-end data and analyzing some of this information, you're, you're correct. We're seeing such growth and higher occupancy in terms of different types of retail projects out in the suburban and dense suburban and, and rural markets and quite a bit of activity. You said something really interesting. I'm curious to ask, um, you know, with your top three, which, by the way, thank you very much because, um, you know, I didn't take into consideration you know, we always talk about people have moved away, but I didn't re- realize, you know, the U-Haul report is a great report to kind of evaluate. But you said something very interesting. My question to you is from that report, if you have it, um, that knowledge at your fingertips, so to speak, what is the traditional, are people moving away from their offices within a 20, 50, 100 mile 
radius of their office, be thinking that at some point they still have this hybrid work environment, or it's really irrelevant and they're just moving based on affordability and quality of life? Yeah, so that's a great question because originally, initially in COVID, we did the shorter distance, right? So we just kind of got out of the city. We went to the suburb. Maybe mom and dad were nearby. But as we've gone through COVID and gone on longer, the distances are getting greater. So U-Haul and even United Van Lines show that. That what we're saying is, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm in New York City, and you know, it's just not a fun experience downtown anymore. And uh, you know, I'm tired of mom and dad's boring place in Connecticut, and I'd really rather you know get down to North Carolina or Florida or someplace else. And so we're finding, particularly in the under 35. Uh, age bracket, that they're moving hundreds of miles in, in more than three states. And so they're really moving away from, say, the West Coast and the Northeast. So those really those places that really lack the affordability. And what they're doing is they're creating a lack of affordability where they're moving. So I give you Salt Lake as a good example. A lot of migration into there. Now the median home price in Salt Lake is over 500000 80% of the hospitality, first responder, and ski resort workforce cannot afford to own or rent in Salt Lake City anymore. So we're creating, we're dragging this lack of affordability uh, inland where everybody treks forward. But as COVID has gone on, it's a longer distance that we're seeing in multiple states. Fascinating. I have more questions on that topic, but I'll save them for later. Hopefully okay. we can have a, a KC uh, Conway and Angie <laughs> podcast series too here. I, I see it in the near future. Well, let's yeah. get to the next question. And, and as it relates to the next question, you touched upon supply chain and it seems to have eased from what we're hearing here in the U.S. And the U.S. is getting stronger as it relates to manufacturing. But is it really true? I mean, do we have the infrastructure to um, bolster the U.S. manufacturing, to reduce the cost from uh, and pressures of supply chain from overseas so we can basically do the A to Z process all here in the U.S.? It's going to take some time, but we're seeing it happen. So when I was at Collier's back in the you know 2010 to 14 range, you know I started kind of the ports and logistics uh, coverage and research. And, you know, the Panama Canal was expanding and uh, our friends down in Southern California growled at me because I said, this is going to be a big deal and be transformative from our supply chain from West Coast, East Coast, before we even use the term supply chain. And that has exactly happened. We fast forward a decade from now, Panama Canal expanded, COVID hits. And what we're finding is that we're moving our supply chain from really being concentric in Southern California, moving to Chicago and the East Coast to now moving more north south. All but one of the class one railroads moved north-south. We've expanded the, the capabilities of all of our Gulf and Southeast ports to handle post-Panamax vessels. And what we're finding now is they're so automated that more of the ships are going through the Suez Canal and coming into the East Coast. And in fact, your um, executive director at the Port of LA was on CNBC last week, and he was explaining how all the metrics are down there. And the, part, the primary problems are that the East and Gulf Coast ports can move goods twice as fast through the port at half the cost. So even if it takes three to five days longer to sail through the Suez Canal, the goods process through the East Coast port like Savannah or Charleston in one day. And where that could take five to seven days in L.A. Long Beach because they got to move it all inland and by truck and labor union and manual gantry cranes, um, the time that is saved on the port 
is such that the overall movement of the good from its point of origination to the end consumer in the warehouse is so much quicker on the East Coast. We're already doing that. The the Canadian Pacific, Kansas City, Southern Rail merger is part of that story. Now we have a true North American class one railroad. We're seeing more railroad mergers. We have 22 ports that go from New Orleans all the way around to Savannah. Uh, It's really an amazing story. And what we're seeing is in an area that I defined as the Golden Triangle, which is the Great Lakes down to Texas, and then over across all the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic, is now over 50% of our GDP. It handles over 60% of all the containers that come in from abroad versus that used to be from the West Coast coming in. Those numbers have completely flipped. And uh, it's where all about 80% of all the new site selection and manufacturing is coming. So you look at EV EV battery manufacturing, EV car manufacturing, you look at uh, any product that we make, it's coming in really in that southern region, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, Georgia um, is coming in there. So we're seeing this remaking. The problem is we spent 20 years making chasing cheap labor across the world to manufacture. And then whether you like Trump or not, what he showed us was we didn't manufacture enough to save ourselves. So now we're spending about two to three, maybe another two years to go to basically reestablish our reshoring and manufacturing so that that true supply chain is there. But I think we still have another two years to go, but we're remaking our supply chain from West Coast concentric to Chicago to more North South. Wow. I, I would have expected the time frame to be much longer. So, I mean, what I find really interesting is that um, it really does align as well as we we talk to retailers across the U.S. in terms of their growth and expansion strategy. You know, everything there's, you know, there, there's continued cost pressure um, for a lot of retailers. And if they can find more efficient ways of handling their A to Z business, uh, which you just described, it's going to not only benefit them, but ultimately hopefully benefit the consumer with, you know, more appropriate um, pricing that's that's more approachable versus, you know, seeing pricing skew upwards, um, mostly due to inflation, but also mostly due to other other variables, which gets me to, you know, this theme that I keep hearing about for 2023, which is, you know, in retail, it was always omni-channel. And now I think we're at opti-channel, optimizing the different channels to make this much more seamless as well as more efficient, which again, hopefully will trickle down to the consumer um, in terms of, of pricing on products. So, you know, I just read yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Tesla, manufacturing, Mexico, you mentioned just now EV in, you know, kind of the central region. So, well, you know, I know there's, there could be potential other challenges, but is Mexico a, a partner, a manufacturing partner. It, it absolutely is. Um, so if you think about it, Mexico now has a wage rate that's lower than, than Asia and China. Um, and so with the, the connection of Kansas City Southern to Canadian Pacific, we now can accumulate all of the raw materials, the lumber, the potash, the lithium, all the components and materials that we need out of Canada. And we can bring them all the way down into Mexico to make the components and bring them back into the United States. And they don't have the same restrictions like we do with EPA EPA, and taking years, if not decades, to get a plant or a refinery built. So Mexico is very, very rapidly cheapest wage uh, growth, um, very sophisticated stuff, all the logistics supply chain, whether it's ports, whether it's rail, whether it's cross-border uh, trucking, it's all in place. And so they make the components, 
they come back across the U.S. And so all the value-add assembly is done in the U.S. So it's working very well. The new USMCA is actually working very well. All three parties are benefiting from it. And it is really bringing the, the reshoring back. So when you have the EV batteries, the materials, the components, and then you can do the rapid assembly. And in many of our plants today, they're all robotic. It's just like a grocery store. Go try to find a cashier to help you check out of the grocery store. It's all automated. The, the forklifts and the robotics in a warehouse or an assembly plant are phenomenal. So this concern that we have labor shortages and are going to have labor wage increases, not so much in the manufacturing because business solves uh, wage disruption and cost problems with technology. And so it's all robots. The forklift drivers are all robot, just like a parking lot attendant or, you know, check out at the grocery store. So it's happening very rapidly in the manufacturing. So there's a great report by Argonne with the Department of Energy that maps out where all the new EV battery plants are being made. And so it's really from kind of Michigan and Ohio all the way down through the Southeast. And then it's Texas down through Mexico. And with each one of those EV battery plants is about three to five more EV automobile manufacturing plants. So that creates jobs, new communities, new neighborhoods that need grocery and drug stores and retail and all, all that e-commerce stuff. So we're, we're doing it pretty quickly. It's coming back. And I think it's the technology that's enabling that. And people should not be as concerned about our labor participation rate. We should be worried about the robot participation rate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. At some point, I, I think um, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start changing my you know, retail per capita to retail per capita by human or robot. So, uh, yeah, so we'll have to we'll have to start looking at that new stat. Uh, well, I mean, I'll definitely take a look at that uh, report you mentioned. Um, it sounds it's, you know, my brain is starting to kind of move really quickly as it relates to, wow, look at all these new opportunities. And and, you know, what's fascinating to me is like it's it's another great channel as it relates to labor. Right. So we're creating another labor pool opportunity in that industry, although it may challenge other industries as it relates to um, talents. So, but I, I just see this as being so quick um, and, and being accelerated so so quickly here that you know change seems to be the the true constant in our in our uh, U.S in the U.S. as well as globally. So um, we'll see how Well, this- did you know, in retail is the one property type that is the change innovator. It, yes. You can't go 10 years, you know, we didn't just build malls and keep them static. We went to the lifestyle centers and we went to open air. And retail really reinvents itself at least every 10 years, maybe quicker now. So it is the one oh, I definitely type. think it's quicker, more, most mm-hmm. definitely. Well, with that, I, my next question is, as it relates to retail, what are the top... Uh, three retail trends or impacts do you foresee this year? So I think the the key ones are small is the new big. So we're not building, you know, we will open more stores and we will close, but they will be much smaller. There'll be more 20,000 square foot or less rather than these big 60,000 to 100,000 square foot big boxes. And that will flow through to adaptive reuse as well. So small is the new big. Uh, the new big box is a warehouse, e-commerce. So I work with a lot of big um, national e-commerce from home supply to, you know, to other types of merchandise. And what we experience is that every time they build a new e-commerce warehouse uh, in that half million to million square foot range, they can close between 50 and 100 retail stores. So that redundancy in real estate, workforce, inventory is all consolidated 
uh, in your comment earlier about omni-channel to opti-channel is spot on. They, they first figured out retail, they had to have many ways to reach the consumer. Now it's which are the most profitable that optimize. And that's what they're really figuring out in that big box. So even if you look at a home improvement entity, I'll pick on like a Home Depot. Home Depot only built about five stores in the last three to four years, and none of them had a garden center because they now can they can e-commerce all of that garden center stuff to you just like everything else. They can handle big and bulky on the conveyor systems. And then on their contractor business, the contractors don't go pick up the materials anymore at, say, the Home Depot. They order them online and they're delivered just in time that they need them to build the house or whatever. If the weather's bad, they can delay it by a day. So um, the uh, the big the new big box is the big e-commerce, not the big the big store. And the last two I would point out, really, there are one is where's the opportunity. And I think adaptive reuse is one of them. I do a lot of work around that. And there's just tremendous opportunity when we can look at these former retail assets, whether it's a closed defunct mall or it's just a big box store. You know, there's so many things we can do, whether it's retail to industrial conversion, whether it's affordable housing or a type of housing that we can put in there. There's a lot that we can do there on adaptive reuse. And the other one is if you haven't looked at airport retail, and I know you've studied this a lot, Angie, it's off the charts. So I, I point to airports like Salt Lake City or Phoenix Sky Harbor New Airport or, you know, Kansas City just opened their new airport. The amount of retail, it's not just, you know, where I can get a drink and a sandwich. It's full out merchandising that, you know, LPGA or the PGA store or shoes. And I looked back in preparing for this call. I have spent over a thousand dollars in merchandise, not restaurants and food at airports. I've been in Salt Lake City, Bozeman, Phoenix, uh, all those places, um, because as I'm leaving there, it's almost like a mall that happens to have a few uh, airline terminal you know, gates connected to it. And it's an incredible retail story, what's happening in our newer airports that really get it with all that traffic. So I look at airports and those that are redoing them, whether it's a, you know, a new one like a Raleigh-Durham in North Carolina, or I'm really impressed with the Salt Lake City. It's probably my favorite airport to go through. And, uh, you know, when you have a Shake Shack in an airport, you're doing it right. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you're a fan of Shake Shack. Um, I agree with you. I, it's funny because I someone said to me, where do you shop? And I said, it's funny. I actually shop at airports um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, when I'm traveling internationally because uh, it, it's you can find unique products. Sometimes you can, you know, also get if you're traveling internationally, um, you're not paying on the tax side. So. Uh, yeah, I, the airport experience is very different from what it was to where we are today. And I think it's important to look at that piece because we are going to continue to see travel, whether it's domestic or international, continue, you know, outside of, you know, call it inflation. I mean, it's it's people are still traveling because it's it creates that if they want if they're going to spend money they want to spend it towards a memorable experience with family and friends and, and, um, or, or on their own. So I agree with you on that piece. So let me ask you then, and hopefully it's not Shay Shepherd, but maybe it is, but is our, we're going to end this with our fun question. If you could be any retailer, who would it be and why? <laughs> well, I guess since I gave you Shake Shack, I have to pick another one on that side. So, you know, being the red shoe economist, I'm always shopping for new brands of red shoes or whatever. So it would it would probably be, you know, maybe Allbirds. I love the Allbirds, uh, both from a environmental and that they stood up to Amazon and didn't let them bully them. Um, but I never thought at age 60, I'd have more sets of red shoes than, than my wife. But um, the, the shoe stores, um, 
anywhere I go, I can, I can find one. Um, and I'm still a big fan of the hardware store. I love uh, when I can find a good old fashioned ACE hardware that even will sell you one nut or one bolt or fix something for you. So I would say, you know, if it can't be Shake Shack or I can get a good meal at Salt Lake or Phoenix Sky Harbors Airport, uh, I'm always looking at the different shoe stores to see if I can find a new pair of red shoes. And then uh, I just love the, the, the old fashioned hardware store. If I can find an old ACE hardware. Yep. Yep. Those are fun to just hang out. And I could probably stay there for like hours and hours and in some of the older hardware stores. Well, Casey, this was wonderful. And um, keep a lookout. We're going to send you a pair of red shoes um, <laughs> from one of our, our fan favorite clients, Ophis. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, why not? Uh, so yeah, we'll add to your collection and you'll awesome. have to send, send us a, a photo back um, of your collection. So I can't wait to see that. Uh, so with that, um, I just want to conclude and say thank you so much, Casey. This was actually you know, uh, extremely informative, um, not just, you know, talking about trends and forecasts, but, you know, sprinkling in the qualitative components and, and in terms of stats and numbers. And so it's been a very dynamic conversation. So I, I definitely see us hosting another call with you to discuss more around these topics to see if your opinions have changed. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you to all of our listeners uh, at, and, and also to let you know, please stay tuned for our next call next month. And as always, at Colliers, we're focused on our clients, sharing knowledge about the industry on core topics.